Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Revelation 16, I'm going to cover verses 12 through 21, the last half of chapter 16. I'm going to entitle this section, The Sixth and Seventh Bold Judgments. The first part of Revelation 16, the last audio, I covered in, in verses 1 through 11, the first five bold judgments. And those were judgments on the land of Israel, mostly four of them. One of them was on Rome. That carries out our theme of judgment on the two geopolitical entities that murdered Jesus, the Roman Empire, and apostate Israel. So we start now in verse 12, Revelation 16. The sixth angel, this is the angel that had the bowl of judgment, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river the Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. Now this is analogous to the sixth angel who had the trumpet. Revelation 16:12. the sixth angel poured out the, his bowl on the great river the Euphrates. Revelation 9:14 says the sixth angel who had the trumpet, the sixth trumpet, said release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. And so what's happened is that judgment is now coming down from the Euphrates River on the land of Israel. As Philip Carrington said in his commentary on Revelation 1931, The Meaning of the Revelation, page 265, this pouring out of the bowl on the Euphrates symbolized, quote, the return of Titus to besiege Jerusalem with further reinforcements. This happened in AD 70. Vespasian started out from the Euphrates River, started heading down to Jerusalem to finish the war, which had been kind of put on hold because of the civil rebellions going on in the Roman Empire, the Civil War, Vespasian said, we're going to put an end to it. He comes down from the Euphrates River. Thousands of troops came down from the Euphrates River, as Josephus says in Book 3, Section 1, Paragraph 3, Book 3, Section 4, Paragraph 2, Section, uh, section book, book 5, Section 1, Paragraph 6, and Book 7, Paragraph 1, Section, excuse me, Book 7, Section 1, and Paragraph 3. I just mentioned all that to you because it's well documented. I just wanted to show how well documented it is. Now, the Euphrates River was, if you'll look at, on, look at it on the map, it comes up from the Persian Gulf and mainly runs north, a little bit north and west. Then all of a sudden, when it gets north, as it gets toward the Syrian desert, it takes a sharp bend to the west. And so if you look at Israel, that, that bending part of the Euphrates River is to the north east of Israel. So that means if you're going to describe a country coming down to judge Israel, it's going to either be coming from the north or the east. They usually don't say northeast. It's either north or east. People can't attack Israel from the east because there's a big desert there, the Arabian Desert. And so the judgment has to come from the north, from the Euphrates River, River, and that's where the Romans had all their troops garrisoned up there on the Euphrates. Now, in the vision, the water is said to be dried up, that is the water of the Euphrates River was said to dry up. This is ironic because the Red Sea and the Jordan River, as the Israelites escaped Egypt and then crossed the Jordan to get into the Promised Land, those seas were dried up to save Israel. But here, the sea is going to be dried up to destroy Israel, allowing those Romans to cross the Euphrates and come on. Now, again, this didn't happen literally. This is happening in the vision. And what happened in the vision was to symbolize what happened on the ground, namely not that the Euphrates dried up, but that all those troops were coming down to completely judge Israel.
because Israel is the new Babylon. If you recall, Cyrus the Persian conquered Babylon by turning the Euphrates out of its course. He then marched up the dry riverbed and attacked. He got under the, the gates that were sunk down into the river that nobody could get under. Well, the river was dry, so they just walked under and took the city. So, And that was on the Euphrates River. So the Euphrates River was dried up so that the earlier Babylon could be destroyed. And now the new Babylon, Israel, is destroyed by water drying up. We turn now to Revelation 16, verses 12, 13, and 14. And I, that's John, saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the sea beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, that's the land beast, apostate Israel, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God. Now the fact that John in his vision saw three frogs coming out of the mouth of that red dragon that he saw, and we know the red dragon is the devil, we know that the beast, the sea beast, is the Roman Empire, and the false prophet is the land beast, which is apostate Israel, this shows that all three are working together. That the Roman Empire and the apostate nation of Israel, the two geopolitical entities that murdered Jesus and persecuted the apostles, they were all operating at the instigation and with impetus from the devil himself, from Satan. Those three frogs that came out are said to be demons. They did signs and wonders. I, now, I don't know what John saw in his vision, how a demon would be perform, doing signs. It's kind of interesting. I'd like to, I kind of wish I could picture that, but I can't. But they're doing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Now, these frogs, of course, uh, represent unclean animals. In the Old Testament, dietary laws, frogs were unclean. And so these demons, of course, are dirty spirits. Now, again, as David Chilton points out, we don't need to get hung up on the fact that how can kings of the world see the signs of Jewish false prophets? What does that mean, Jewish false prophets showing signs so that the kings of the earth can see them? Well, the answer is, is they saw it in John's vision. We might as well ask, how did the kings of the world see frogs, if you're going to get that technical about it? Now, the kings of the earth, the kings of the whole world, the King James has kings of the earth and of the whole world. That's referring to the constituent kings of the Roman Empire, those kings that were associated with the Roman Empire. Thayer's Greek lexicon says that king, Basileus, means, quote, leader of the people, prince or commander, unquote, as well as king, so... This would mean that the leaders, the commanders of the Roman army are coming to Jerusalem in AD 70. So in other words, the demons under the auspices of God who was sovereign over them, the demons convince all the constituent elements of the Roman army, the kings of the earth, kings of the world, the leaders of the, of, the, of the world, of the Roman world, the demons convince them to come down here and wipe out Israel. And that's exactly what happened. The war of the great day of God, the war is the Jewish war that took place between AD 66 and 70. The great day of God is referring to the judgment day when Jerusalem fell in AD 70. The great day of God is just another name for day of judgment at which time the wicked are destroyed. Now I'm going to run through some scriptures, about four Old Testament scriptures that talk about this day of God. And we'll see that the day of God does not refer to a particular day of God. It doesn't. It also doesn't refer to a day of God at the end of the world. It refers to other days of judgments besides that final great white throne judgment at the end of the world. 
For example, Isaiah 13, 6 says this, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Now, Isaiah was prophesying of the destruction of Babylon by, by the Medes, which is a famous story in ancient history. I should say the Medo-Persians. We have another day of the Lord in Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, verse 11 and verse 31. Joel mentions the day of the Lord several times. And in this instance, he's talking about judgment on northerners, judgment on Israel by northerners. And of course, who are the northerners? This implies the Syrian or the Babylonians or the Persians. Sometimes these early, these Old Testament prophets aren't clear on exactly who's coming. Bible.org says it's either Syria, Babylonia, or Persia, a day of the Lord for Israel. Joel says this in chapter 2, Blow you the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord comes. For it is nigh, it is near at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. As the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong. There has not been ever the light, neither shall there be any more after it, even to the years of many generations." And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and the terrible day of the Lord. That, of course, was quoted by Peter in, in his Pentecostal sermon, and there he was talking about Judgment Day in AD 70. But here, Joel in the Old Testament was talking about judgment on Israel by either Assyria or the Babylonians, Syria 722, Babylonians 586. All right, here's a third Old Testament example of day of the Lord. Amos 5, verses 18, 19, and 20. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will, be, what will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom without any brightness in it. Amos is prophesying judgment on Israel, as the Encyclopedia Britannica says, probably by Assyria, even though Amos doesn't specify Assyria, but that's probably who he's talking about. And he says it's going to be a day of the Lord. It's going to be bad, gloom with no brightness, darkness and not light. Zephaniah 1, 14 through 16. The great day of the Lord is near, and they are rapidly approaching. Listen, the day of the Lord. Then the warrior's cry is bitter. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers. Zephaniah is talking about a day of the Lord coming on Israel. Judgment on Israel is probably carried out by Babylon. Zephaniah wrote about 630. Babylon came in 586. So you see, the day of the Lord is a common expression used in the Old Testament for Judgment Day, sometimes on Israel, one time on Babylon. Well, actually, three of the four verses I gave you was Judgment on Israel. So let's go back to our verse in Revelation. These three demons, frog demons, I'll call them, they convinced the kings of all the constituent nations of the Roman Empire, as the King James has it, the kings of the earth and of the whole world. These demons convinced all these leaders to come together for the Jewish war that brought about the day of God, the day of judgment, the day of destruction on apostate Jerusalem. We turn now to verse 15 of Revelation 16. Behold, this is a parenthesis. The New American Standard puts it in parentheses. Behold, I am coming like a thief. 
Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Now, of course, that seems sort of strange to us, but again, we'll use our typical hermeneutical principle, our principle of interpretation that says we go to the Old Testament. The allusion is to officials on watch at the temple. A special officer was assigned to go around the temple to see if officials on watch were awake. If they were not awake, their first offense earned them a beating. If they were not awake a second time, their second offense subjected them to having their clothes taken away and being burnt. So the point is, those guarding the new covenant temple were to stay awake. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. He's writing to these seven churches. Stay awake. Your job is to establish the new covenant. Keep your clothes. Don't be found naked. Don't fall asleep. I'm coming like a thief. The judgment on Jerusalem will come very quickly, but it's going to be tough until that happens, and so you need to stay awake while all the persecution is going on. We go now to Revelation 16, verse 16, and they gathered them together. That's the three frog demons gathered the kings together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. This is the famous Armageddon. Armageddon in ASB has Armageddon. This is a word, if you translate it from Hebrew to English, you get this. Har is mountain in Hebrew, and Megadon is Megiddo, which is that place up there in the northwestern corner of Israel. So it's mountain of Megiddo. Now, the interesting thing is there is no such thing as a mountain of Megiddo. I've been there. It's a flat plain, a plateau. There never So there never was, nor never will there be, a literal battle of Armageddon, that battle that everybody always talks about, oh, it's going to be the end of the world, the Arm battle of Armageddon is going to end the world. No, Megiddo was a plain, not a mountain. So what does the mountain of Megiddo refer to? It probably refers to Mount Carmel, which is close by. I've been there too. It's a mountain that sticks up over the sea right there on the Mediterranean coast, right where the little elbow of land, if you look at the map, is. And then you leave Carmel, I think it's roughly south and east, and you go a little ways and you're on the plain of Megiddo, looking over the valley of Jezreel. And you look across there, you can see for miles and miles and miles. And of course, people, armies always coming up from Egypt, going up to Mesopotamia, going up to Syria. They always went through the valley of Megiddo because that was the natural way to go. You came up the, the road along the Mediterranean Sea, you got toward Carmel, then you, then you took a right, went east, and you went into the plain of Jezreel, and then into the... The plain of Megiddo, I'm sorry, then down into the Valley of Jezreel, and then cross the Jordan River and on up to Damascus, on up to Syria. So this was an ideal place for fighting a war, by the way. Lots of them have been fought there. Now, the next question is, why did John mention it? These three frog demons gathered the kings together at, a, at the mountain of Megiddo, Har-Mageddon? Well, here's what his illusion is. John wants to refer to Megiddo and Carmel in one breath. Why Megiddo? Because that's where unrighteous Israel under Josiah was defeated by Necho of Egypt. Now, this is a famous situation for those who've studied Old Testament history. Let me just read you briefly what happened. Second Chronicles 35, 20-25. After all this that Josiah had prepared for the temple, King Necho of Egypt marked, marched up to fight at Carchemish by the Euphrates, and Josiah went up to comfort, confront him. Now, let me stop here and give a little bit of brief background to this. This is in 605 B.C., the famous Battle of Carchemish, where the Egyptian pharaoh Necho decided he wanted to stop the rising power of Babylon, and he wanted to prop up his ally Assyria. And so he went to help Assyria against Babylon, as Assyria, the Assyrian Empire was dying. 
And Josiah decided that Assyria still scared him. Assyria was the former bad boy of the Middle East. And Josiah, king of Judah, did not want Assyria to be strong anymore, and he didn't want Egypt aligned with Assyria, and so he went out to try to stop Necho, and unfortunately got himself killed in the process. All right, so we pick up again Second Chronicles thirty-five twenty-one. But Necho sent messages to him saying, "What is the issue between you and me, King of Judah? I've not come up against you today, but I am fighting another dynasty, namely the Babylonians. God told me to hurry." Stop opposing God who is with me. Don't make him destroy you. Now, I'm sure Necho wasn't, wasn't talking about Yahweh when he said God. But Josiah did not turn away from him. Instead, in order to fight with him, he disguised himself. He did not listen to Necho's words from the mouth of God, but went to the valley of Megiddo to fight. So you see, he was at Megiddo. The archer shot King Josiah, and he said to his servants, Take me away, for I'm severely wounded. So his servants took him out of the war chariot, carried him in his second chariot, and brought him to Jerusalem. Then he died. And they buried him in the tomb of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah chanted a dirge over Josiah, and all the male and female singers still speak of Josiah in their dirges today at the time of the writing of Chronicles. They established them, these dirges, as a statute for Israel. And indeed, they are written in the dirges. So you see, this mourning went on. It was institutionalized. The mourning for Josiah which the mourning for what happened at Megiddo was printed in their statute books. And in fact, Israel mourned for Josiah all the way down to Ezra's time. Ezra was post-exilic. If I, remember his, I don't remember his dates right off the top of my head, head, but he was a good ways later. Second Chronicles 35:25. I just mentioned that. Jeremiah chanted that dirge over, society, over Josiah. And Zechariah, who was writing in the late 6th century B.C., Zechariah 12, verses 10 through 11, Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly for him as one who weeps for a firstborn. That's talking about the crucifixion. That John meant John quotes this verse in John John chapter nineteen, I think it is. Somewhere in John he talks about you're gonna mourn over the Messiah that you killed. On that day, verse eleven, on that day the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning of Hadadrimon in the plain of Megiddo. Now Hadadrimon was the place where Josiah was mourned. It was in the plain of Megiddo. So there was a lot of mourning at Megiddo. Alright, and so that's what Megiddo stood for for the people. And so we go back to Revelation 16, 16, and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon, the mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo was a place of mourning. And the idea is, is Israel, you're going to mourn like crazy when your capital city's burnt to the ground in AD 70. Now, John also mentions the mountain of Megiddo, which, as we said, is Mount Carmel. Why mention Mount Carmel? Because that's a famous place in Old Testament history. That's where the false prophets of Jezebel were defeated. And so John wants to emphasize that the false prophets of Israel will be defeated at Christ coming in judgment to Jerusalem. We go down to Revelation 16:17. Then the seventh angel. All right, we finished with the sixth angel. That's the angel that let loose the, the armies from the Euphrates River by drying up the river. So that's the sixth bowl judgment, the angel that had the bowl of judgment in his hand. And now we go to Revelation 16:17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. Well, that loud voice that came out of the temple from the throne, 
Well, God was sitting on the throne, so that loud voice is from God. He said, it's done, boys. It's over. We're wiping you out. Now, why was the the bowl of judgment of wrath poured out upon the air? Well, here's some options, because the air is the abode of the prince of the power of the air. It could be because that's where lightning and thunder is produced, and this might have created a pretty good effect of judgment, lightning, and thunder. I've got this idea. Maybe this is my idea, not from a commentary. Take it with a grain of salt. Maybe there wasn't anything left to pour it out on because it had already been wiped out. Now, I don't know about that. It's probably because it's the prince of the power of the air, the devil's abode, wiped out. Now, when God said it is done... This reminds us of Revelation 15, verse 1. Then I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven, seven angels with the seven last plagues. That's the seven bowl judgments that we just talked about. We've just gotten to the seventh one. For with them, these seven bowls, God's wrath will be done, will be completed. This is the end of the story for apostate Israel. Judgment is complete on them. We go to Revelation 16, 18. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. There's your lightning and thunder. That might be why the bowl was poured on the air in order to produce that lightning and thunder, and I think that's probably what it is, more so than because the devil is the prince of the power of the air. I think it's because to make the lightning and thunder. And then there was a great earthquake. Of course, earthquake is typical decreation rhetoric. Earthquake means judgment, regime change. Earthquake is mentioned seven times on five different occasions in Revelation. I'm going to read them to you to get a feel for this, the idea of judgment. Revelation 6:12. then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. Typical decreation rhetoric. Revelation 8, 5. The angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Judgment. Revelation 11.13. That Revelation 8.5 was judgment on the land of Israel. Revelation 11.13. That moment a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell. The tithe, the earthquake, showing that. God is saying, one-tenth of the city's mine, I've destroyed it. And that stands for the other nine-tenths that belongs to me, too. Just like a tithe stands for the whole. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. Seven is the perfect number. Thousands, lots, ten times, ten times, tens. Lots of people were killed in the earthquake. Jerusalem is destroyed in judgment. Revelation 11:19. Then the temple of God in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbles, and peals of thunder, an earthquake and severe hail. So there's another example of judgment coming on the land. And finally, in Revelation 16:18, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake occurred like no other since people have been on the earth. So great was the quake. That verse, I'm sure, sounds familiar because that's the verse that we're on right now. So there you have it. The land of Israel is being shaken. That reminds us of the scripture in Hebrews 12, verses 26 through 29, where we see Jerusalem being shaken. Verse 26, his voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised yet more, more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So we got an earthquake and a heavenquake, if you will. This expression yet once more indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that, that what is not shaken might remain. That, what, that which can be shaken was the Old Testament covenant. 
Old Testament apostate Israel, that could be shaken. That which cannot be shaken, that which will remain, is the new covenant, Christian church. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it we may serve God acceptably, and so forth. Now, note this verse is misused a lot of times. People talk about God shaking something in my life. That's fine for an application, but that's not what the author of Hebrews was writing about. He was talking about the old covenant, which he did not want his readers to go back to. So he says, it's being shaken. It's being destroyed. Why do you want to go back to that? You, want to, you should stay, instead of apostatizing, you should stay in the kingdom that will not be shaken, the kingdom of Christ. So God, with a consuming fire, shook Jerusalem and destroyed it. The old heavens and earth are removed, the author of Hebrews says, and as a result, we have received the kingdom that cannot be moved. Now note the old rabbinic idea of the temple. The temple was considered heaven and earth. The holy of holies was heaven because God lived there. The holy place was earth. As you left the holy place and you went from west to east, and then after you went out of the holy place, you looked out and you looked out on the sea. The bronze laver was, of course, like a sea, and also the outer courts were considered the sea. Now, I've checked that out in a different context, and there's no question this is true. David Chilton first pointed it out to me without elaboration, and I found, out some, I found some other articles on the Internet talking about how the rabbis looked at the temple as heaven and earth. And so heaven and earth was being shaken in Hebrews. Earthquake, regime change, it's over, it's done, as God said, as that voice from the throne said. When the seventh bowl poured out his wrath. Revelation 16:19, the seventh angel poured out the bowl of his wrath. Revelation 16:19, the great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered in God's presence. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Now that great city was old Jerusalem. Revelation 11:8 says this: Their dead bodies, the two prophets, will lie in the main street of the great city, which is figurative called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So where was the Lord crucified? The Lord was crucified in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is called the great city in Revelation 11.8. The dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city where their Lord was crucified. So the great city is Jerusalem, and the great city is also Babylon the Great. In Revelation 14.8, this is the King James, and there followed another angel saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city. So Babylon is called the great city in 14.8 and 11.8. Jerusalem is called the great city. That means Jerusalem is Babylon. So Jerusalem is now figuratively Babylon. So we go, so here in verse 19 of chapter 16, the great city, that's talking about Babylon and that's talking about Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was split into three parts. Now, couple of possibilities is what that could refer to. could refer to Ezekiel's prophecy in Ezekiel 5, 1 through 12, where Ezekiel is instructed to shave his head with a sharp sword and divide his hair into three parts. And one-third of the hair he was to burn, one-third he was to strike with a sword, and one-third is scattered to the wind. And we read in Ezekiel 5:12 what that signifies. A third of your people will die by plague and be consumed by famine within you. A third will fall by the sword all around you, and I will scatter a third to every direction of the wind. So a third of the hair was burnt. That stands for plague and famine. A third of the hair struck with the sword. That refers to death by the sword. A third of the hair was scattered to the wind, and that refers to the exile of the people who were left over after the the earlier Babylon destroyed Israel in 586 B.C. That's what Ezekiel was prophesying about. And so that's the old Babylon, and the new Babylon is going to be divided into three three parts. And the three parts are 
Plague and famine, part number one. That's the first third. Second third, death by the sword. Third, 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 exile. And that's exactly what happened to the inhabitants of the new Babylon, Jerusalem. And I think that's probably what the three parts refers to. But now it is almost impossible to not want to refer to historical references if you can. Don't know that this is true, but it could be. Three parts. How about the three factions that were within Jerusalem during the siege of Jerusalem in 68? The three factions that were listed, this is according to Wikipedia, there was the Judean Provisional Government, faction number one. There was the Zealots, faction number two. And then there was the Edomites. And what happened is the Zealots thought the Judean Provisional Government had conspired with Vespasian, the Roman general, to turn Jerusalem over to the Romans. And the Zealots said, no, 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 we want the Messiah to deliver us, so we don't like these sellouts, these provisional government officials. So the zealots let in a bunch of Edomites. The Edomites come in and they slaughter the forces of the provisional government. And then they start slaughtering the common people. So so the city is divided into three parts, three factions. Ooh, that's pretty close. I like it better when one symbol refers to one thing. But here, I, I don't know which way to go because both of them sound pretty good to me. Ezekiel's prophecy of the three parts of hair or the three factions in the city. But at any rate, Jerusalem fell. Next, and the cities of the nations fell. Now, this is another indication that the great city is Jerusalem, as I've just said. You can prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt just by looking at the other verses in Revelation. But notice that John distinguishes the city of the Gentiles from the great city. He says, the, he says, the great city, Kaputsky, and the cities of the nation, Kaputsky. He's contrasting them. The cities of the nation, of course, would be the Gentiles, and those, of course, of all the nations under the Roman Empire. Again, apostate Israel and the Roman Empire, the two geopolitical entities that killed Jesus. Now, how did the cities of the Roman Empire fall? Well, that basically means the Roman Empire. How did it fall? The Roman Empire was intimately connected with Jerusalem in opposition to the New Covenant Church. They both eventually went down to defeat. And, of course, you could say that was in the year of the four emperors in 68, as well as that's what happened to the Romans in 60, uh, 69, I'm sorry. And then, of course, what happened to Israel in 70. And I think that's the easiest way to take it. But David Chilton, he's got such a great imagination. He's like John Gill of an earlier time great imagination. I don't think he's right a lot of times, but here's what he said. Quote, Jerusalem was the capital city of the kingdom of priests, the place of the temple within her walls. Sacrifices and prayers were offered up for all the nations. The old covenant system was a world order, the foundation on which the whole world was organized and maintained in stability. She covenantally represented all the nations of the world, and in her fall, they collapsed. The new organizations of the world was to be based on the new Jerusalem built on the rock. And that's basically saying that when Jerusalem fell, since Jerusalem was basically spiritually in charge of the whole rest of the nations of the world, the rest of the nations fell. I don't think so. I think it's much easier just to say that Rome went down in 69. Of course, it came back, but that's okay. Revelation 16:19 doesn't say anything about the Roman Empire reviving itself when Vespasian took over in 70. It just says the cities of the nation fell, and they did. The Roman Empire was an absolute disaster during that year. All right, the end of verse 19, Revelation 16, Babylon the Great, that's Jerusalem, was remembered in God's presence. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger, the wine of his wrath. That's a common metaphor. Let me mention one more thing that, that Chilton 
just to give Chilton's idea a little bit more discussion here, the idea that when the Jews went down, the Romans went down too. 7% of the Roman Empire was Jewish at the time of Christ, according to the great uh, famous church historian Harnack. Now, so many Jews in the Roman Empire, 7%, that can only come from a lot of proselytizing from Jerusalem. So the implication is when Jerusalem fell, Jewish opposition in every city of the empire went down too. So the cities of the nations would refer to Jews in, in those cities of the nations, those cities of the Gentiles. They're the ones that fell when Jerusalem fell. That's another idea. So the great city was split into three parts. Babylon the Great was judged, remembered, and Babylon the Great, Jerusalem, drank the cup of the wine of God's wrath, and the cities of the nations fell when that happened because the cities of the nations were full of Jews who were who had their spiritual head in Jerusalem. That's a great idea, but again, I don't think that's what it is. I think it means just means that the Roman Empire, its nation, its cities fell during that great civil war in AD 69. We go now to Revelation 16, verse 20. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. I hear you go. This is the typical decoration rhetoric that you see all the time in the book of Revelation and in the Old Testament prophets. It represents the fall of apostate Israel. as That's what we've been talking about, the seventh bold judgment. Now, Chilton, again, with his imagination, says that every island and mountain fled away. This means that every false refuge disappears. He refers us to Revelation 6.16, which says this, And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And the idea is they were in the mountains trying to find refuge, but nonetheless, the rocks, they were still praying for the rocks to fall on them. I, I don't think that's it. It's just decreation rhetoric. Israel's gone down. Last verse, Revelation 16:21. Last verse of Revelation 16. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds. Now, that's the New American Standard translation. Uh, the King James, the Greek is one talent. Some translations have 75 pounds instead of 100 pounds. I don't know why. But we're just going to say one talent. And huge hailstones, about one talent each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extreme severe. As you can imagine, a 100-pound ball of ice coming on top of you. Now, this might have reference to something historical. Orthodox preterists love to quote this passage of Josephus. This is in Book 5, Section 6, Paragraph 3. Josephus, in that section, was referring to, to a huge stone that Roman missiles had catapulted into the city. Quote, the stone missile, not just a stone, stones, they were shooting, they were catapulting stones into the city. Josephus says this, quote, the stone missiles weighed a talent. Notice that's the same amount that's mentioned in Revelation 16, 21. Hailstone that weighs a talent, and here is a stone missile that weighed a talent. Travel two furlongs or more, and the impact not only on those who were hit first, but on, but also on those behind them, was enormous. At first the Jews kept watch for the stone, for it was white, and its approach was intimated to the eye by its shining surface, as well as to the ear by its whizzing sound. Watchmen posted on the towers gave the warnings whenever the engine was fired and the stone came hurtling toward them, shouting in their native tongue, The sun is coming! Now, why would these watchmen, seeing a missile coming into the city, shout, the sun is coming? Well, it's because they were familiar with Jesus' prediction that Jesus would come and destroy the temple, all of that discourse. 
And what is the day of that coming? You know, not one stone will be left on the temple. And the word coming is in the Olivet Discourse. So they were familiar with the idea that Jesus was coming, coming before that generation passed away. So then they saw the stone coming. They thought they'd be cute. And they said, the sun is coming. Well, ha, ha, ha. Jesus had the last laugh on that one as their city got burnt down. Now, James, this is from the church historian Hegesippus, mentions this. James, Jesus' brother, James the Just, he publicly testified in the temple before AD 70 that, quote, the Son of Man was about to come in the clouds of heaven. This, of course, is from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Son of Man coming in the, on the clouds of heaven. And, and James was repeating that, and he preached it in the temple, and so people had heard it. And so he's quoting Jesus' prediction that Jesus would come and destroy the temple in the Olivet Discourse. He said that. And, of course, the people got mad at James. They threw him off the wing of the temple and murdered him. But at any rate, the Jews were well aware of Jesus' prediction. And so these Jews were making fun of Jesus as the missiles came in. The sun is coming. Well, that's sort of blasphemous, isn't it? Revelation 16:21 says, And men blasphemed God because of the hate plague of the hail, because of those stones coming in. Now notice, they didn't repent when they saw the missiles coming in. They said, The sun is coming. Sarcastic. It is a myth that extreme suffering necessarily produces penitence. Sometimes it does not. Remember that verse? I just read that verse. Revelation 6, 16, And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Instead of repenting, they just said, Hide from it. Run from him. Now these people in Jerusalem who were blaspheming God, they were not only callous, but they were stupid. Why would one blaspheme God when you got a hundred pound rocks falling on your head? I don't know. Ladies and gentlemen, we have finished Revelation chapter 16. We have finished the 6th and the 7th trumpets. God has said it is done. It is over. Lights out for Jerusalem. And now, in our next chapter, we'll take up the first eight verses of chapter 17, and we'll look at the famous Whore of Babylon. I'll give you a heads up. That's apostate Israel. Hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.